Hello, Voices of Wrestling listener. Dave Ryan here. Have you ever wondered to yourself, how many hidden gems are hidden away inside the last years of World Championship Wrestling? Have you ever asked yourself how many tenuous gags can be made about the name Mike Enos? And have you ever thought about what it sounds like for two Irishmen to interpret a very chaotic company through its B-show? The answers to all this and more are just a click away. Check out Days of Thunder every second Thursday on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Hey now, it's the Mike and JD Show, and I'm your host, Mike Gilbert, and I'm joined as always by JD by God Oliva. How you doing, JD? Man, it's been a week. I was telling you before the show, and I'll repeat this, I'm I'm in my coaching gear. As you can see, we just finished up our uh, U16, you know, the under-16 Greco-Roman National Championships. I'm Team Illinois coach on the Greco staff, and we were rocking and rolling, got to the finals. And we lost to Iowa. It came down to the last two matches, and and we just lost. I hate losing. Ugh. I hate it. Yeah. And then we live in the boonies, right? So we don't have, like, regular water like normal people. We have wells here in the boonies. Everyone, every property has their own well. And Saturday, and I've been going, by the way, this practices for this camp are an hour and a half from my house one way. So I drive an hour and a half one way, drive an hour and a half back every day for the last week, summer for teacher, got time. But it's been a pain in the butt. So I get home Saturday because I want to take a shower. I turn my faucet on, ain't no water. I'm like, that's weird. So I go in the other shower, turn that on, ain't no water. I go to just turn on the regular faucet, no water there. I'm like, well, this is a problem. So I call my wife, who's actually on vacation this week. She's like, check the well. So I go downstairs, check the well there. It's dry. Go outside. It's soaked outside mm. of the well. And I'm like, oh, shit. So I call the well guys. and like, oh, yeah, we got to we gotta go check your well. So they can't check the well until we get rid of the bush. Because right? the people who lived there before us put this bush in front of the well cover so that you can't see the well cover. My wife hates it. We wanted to remove it for months. But we never did it. Now we have to do it. But we can't remove the well cover until we get – we call it Julie in Illinois, the people that check your power lines and your natural gas lines, and they just make those marks so that when you dig, you don't break something or cut something. So I'm stuck. So we've had no water since Saturday. It's been a week, man. It has been <laughs> a week. How are you, yeah. my friend? Oh, man, I'm good. I mean, I have water, so that's good. I almost didn't have water this morning because the the main we have several wells that service the base, but mm-hmm. the main well um, had a power outage this morning, so we got a notification first thing. Thankfully, after I took a shower, we got a notification saying, don't use the water right now because – not because it was not potable, but because they just wanted to make sure that no pressure built up in the water lines. Mm-hmm. When the, what ha- So when the well goes down, you still have water in the water lines, and if people are using it and the well isn't working, that could build up pressure and cause a water main break. And then at that point, the water could become non-potable, which I don't know if you've heard about what's happened in Hawaii uh, with the military bases out here. We've had some issues with the water systems. And so mm-hmm. uh, anytime, and, and I'm part of the team that helps rectify that situation. So anytime there's an issue with the water system, people start running around like chickens with their heads cut off. But uh, thankfully they, they were able to reboot the power system and then they had to go through all their tests and everything was fine. And by, 
you know, I think 11 o'clock this morning, um, all the water was back online. <clears throat> so while that's happening, I got my team trying to figure out all this stuff to get the right messaging out because that's kind of what we do. Risk communication is kind of like mm-hmm. our specialty. And <clears throat> we, um, I have to kind of do some conflict resolution, um, some mediating, um, stuff that I refuse to do on Discord and on Twitter among our friends. I just let them go at it. And not only do I let them go at it, I typically add fuel to the fire. Um, you poke and the bear. I, just, I poke the bear and I let them mm-hmm. fight. And then I'll just I'll bounce because that, that entertains me. Because at the end of the day, we're arguing about wrestling, Yeah. about people pretending to fight each other right. in their underwear on television. And I love pro wrestling. Don't get me wrong. But oh, yeah. at the there's no real reason to get mad at somebody who doesn't like the same thing you do and vice versa. Right. So, so, but because they get so mad, I like to, I like to like add fuel to the fire a little bit and just kind of get them all spun up and watch them go sometimes. Um, although I do think the people that we've known for a while are kind of catching on to my shenanigans. They don't take the bait sometimes, but um, I do, I do like to tweak them. You too can join in the fun at the Viking <laughs> Media Discord page and yeah. see Mike's epic trolling and JD going, what is wrong with you people all the yeah. time? Because that's pretty much yeah. what we do. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, how is the volcano? Oh, okay. So, I, I you know, I should have tweeted out the picture again, but uh, I'm on Oahu, right? Mm-hmm. Volcano on the Big Island. That's pretty far away. So, so I don't think it's people, like, I don't think, I don't think people have not been to Hawaii realize yeah. just how far away from each other these islands are. And I also don't think they know that Oahu or Honolulu are are not on the big island. So yeah. please give us a Hawaii uh, topography lesson. Yeah, you know, there's actually I can't I can't even remember the names of all the islands because you got you got uh, you got Nihihau, which is owned by the Robinson family, which that's a forbidden island. We can't go yes, to that private island. Owned by a, it's a private owned by somebody. You got Kauai. Um, you got you got us. There's um, Maui. There's the Big Island. There's Molokai. That's where they sent all the lepers. That's to the leper island. Day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we're we're Oahu. It's actually a smaller island, but because we have Honolulu, it's the most populated island. If that makes any sense. The Big mm-hmm. Island. That's where you got Hilo and Kona. So those are the two bigger cities there on the Big Island, and that's where they have the most of the volcanic activity. So last year, whenever there was that big volcano. Um, they was there on the big island, and that's the one where I think it's called Kilauea. I think that's mm-hmm. the one that's erupting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not really affecting us at all. It would be like it would be like living in Sacramento and having an issue in Los Angeles. It's it's not all that close, but it's like it's like a forty five minute plane ride. To be fair, New York, the entire East Coast, the Northeast Coast is currently orange. Because yeah. of the wildfires in Canada. So the planet's coming to a crippling end, is what I'm hearing from all of us. <laughs> Neither of us have water. Volcanoes are going off. Wildfires are spreading across the world. We're all going to die. And here we are talking about dudes who fight in their underwear. Pretend to fight in their underwear, <laughs> Pretend mind Pretend to you. fight. Well, yes. and not only that, we got aliens. Oh, okay, yeah. So you tweeted yeah. something. And I went like, and again, you're, mil- you're Air Force. So when you yeah. tweet about aliens, I pay attention. When those weird dudes are like <laughs> no. aliens, I'm oh, like, let let know. me stop you right there. They don't tell me shit, by the way. I'm aware. Like, I, I, you, I, oh, I've never had the top secret clearance. No, you <laughs> know things, and you have to keep them quiet, and I respect <laughs> yeah. that. So when yeah. you tweet something about aliens, and it's not the first time you've done this, I always go, hmm, 
What does hmm. Mike know that the rest of us <laughs> do not? Yeah. Well, the answer is nothing. I, I read the same article that you guys, because I, I work in like, I work in a clinic and today there was so much drama. I called it general hospital. That is a tweet. Um, that is a text you sent me today. Yeah, was yes. that you work in general hospital. Yeah. I work, I work in general hospital, which was a, like my actual job was keeping me from updating the notes today. I was trying to get like a really detailed, like a bunch of notes. Like I want to get a couple of pages of Iron Sheik because I feel like he deserves it. So we're, and we will get into the Iron Sheik, but um, yeah. So um, this guy, David Grush, he's an Air Force veteran. He's no longer in the Air Force, right? But he, um, yeah, you're yeah, well, no, he 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 actually transitioned out to become a civilian, and he was he was what's a, a GS fifteen, which is about as far as civilians go, is about as high ranking as you could get. And he worked for several different organizations: the National Reconnaissance Office, the National Geospatial um, Office, and and some and those types of offices, right? And and he is claiming that um, he had the highest level secret clearance that you could possibly get, and this guy is as legit as they come. Um, and everybody that he's ever worked with or worked for has kind of come out and, and said, like, this guy is not a liar. He doesn't make stuff up. He's as legit as they get. Okay. So he's, he's saying that he um, has been told throughout his career that not only have um, the, the U.S. government, not the military, the U.S. government, not only have they found alien spacecraft, they have found p- alien spacecraft pilots AKA aliens, 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 and they've been recovering these things for years. And then a separate article that come out today saying that they talked to their sources within kind of like the shadow government that the, um, that they have like 12 or more alien spacecraft on hand right now. I think it's only a matter of time before we get to see actual evidence of what they call it as non-human origin, spacecraft of non-human origin, essentially alien spacecraft, right? So aliens. Yeah. I I think it's fascinating. Do I fully believe it? No, but I, you know, I'd like to see some evidence, but the conversation around it is fascinating. And I really like it when people treat it with dignity because I think it's a serious issue. <laughs> like, like if we did find aliens, we're fucked. We're at, okay. We're either fucked or the game changes. And there's people that say there are literally people that will tell you all the advancements of the 20th century came because of contact with aliens, right? Yeah. There's people who will say Velcro and microwaves and all that stuff that became popular in the latter half of the 20th century is all based on alien technology. These are the same people that also say that aliens built the pyramids and stuff like that. However, yeah. however, Roswell, do you believe it? It is a okay. city. I believe that the city itself is real. Yeah, the city. Do, okay. do you believe that in 1947, that alien spaceship crash landed in Roswell, New Mexico? I, so I don't, I don't know that I believe that complete story. What I don't believe is the story that the government told everybody mm-hmm. um, was that it was weather balloons, right? I don't believe that one bit um, because they changed their story time and time again. I, I think something happened out there at Roswell, and they don't want to tell anybody about it. Whether or not it's aliens or not, I, I don't know. Could they have been – the U.S. military tests out all different types yes. of aircraft – in deserts like Roswell, and I'll be honest, I worked at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and there were times where I was out in the desert um, digging up holes um, and taking samples of 
sand filled with depleted uranium, right? And out there is where they test out munitions and they test out aircraft. I have not seen any of the aircraft, but I knew out there in the in the Nevada desert, you know, people think of Area 51. It's out going towards there, mm-hmm. um, out there past Creech Air Force Base. They 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 test out aircraft. Some of the aircraft could be di- all different types of shapes and sizes, right? They're just trying to figure stuff out. They're trying to get an, a, an advantage over over our not only our enemies but our allies, and just try to be the the most progressive military in the world. So I think it could very well be that it was some type of weird aircraft that nobody had ever seen before that crashed out there, um, and the military didn't want anybody in on that secret. Something similar happened in uh, I believe it was the California desert where it was the F-117 crashed out there, and they kept that a secret for about a decade because they weren't ready to release it. They were testing out the new aircraft yet. So I think it could be a lot of different things. But do I think it's possible that we have had non-human origin spacecraft on this planet and the shadow governments have kept this a secret and not told anybody? Yes, I do. Uh, Do I think it's possible that they wouldn't tell the politicians? They shouldn't tell the politicians because if you tell the politicians, they'll tell everybody. Uh-huh. They shouldn't tell active. They shouldn't tell active duty military. You know why? Because if you tell a Navy SEAL something, they're going to have a book about it the next month, right? <laughs> That's like, true. Like people are going to find out. So what you do is you get these people in these shadow governments, and you just keep them under lock and key. You know, pounding away on these computers. Those are the only ones that seemingly can take a to, to keep a secret. Unlike, I guess now David Grush, which was what we're finding out. Yeah, he sucked. It turns out of being in the shadow government. <laughs> are you familiar with a writer by the name of Whitley Strieber? I am not, no. So Whitley Strieber was this kind of average fiction writer. In the late 1970s, he put out a quote-unquote nonfiction book called Communion. That is the book that basically popularized the greys, if you will, the grey aliens. He wrote the story about his own life experience being abducted by aliens. And it became an international bestseller. There was a movie starring Christopher Walken playing him. And... It was basically this dude in the nineteen early 80s, late 70s, who basically got the idea going of these gray aliens who come to Earth and, and you know, anal probe people. It's become like a cliche joke now. When I was a child in the early, mid, mid to late 80s, they, I remember Time Life books would have these commercials. And these would run on like kids' cartoons on weekdays, afternoons after school. And they would show this face. Was, have you seen this face? And they would slap the gray alien face into a slow zoom in. And it would, at like six, seven years old, it would terrify me beyond all rational thought. And I would see that on TV and I would run to my couch and I would hide underneath the blanket or underneath the pillows because I could not look at that face. And I remember we would watch Unsolved Mysteries and all that stuff as kids because mm. like mm. in the 80s it was all about torturing kids with television. It was great. And they would have like episodes on alien abduction and like my brother and I were both absolutely terrified <laughs> of these alien of these gray aliens. I think it is possible that I have been abducted by these aliens and I'm suppressing <laughs> memories. It's possible. I'm not yeah. saying it happened. Yeah. I'm saying it's possible. Probably, uh, have probably, you ever heard not. of the movie? The movie it came out last year called Moment of Contact uh, by no. James Fox. No, okay, it's heard. a documentary. It's about this um, this city in uh, Brazil called Virginia, Brazil. And in Virginia, Brazil, back in 1996, they claimed, the city claims that not only did an alien spacecraft land there, but an alien escaped 
and they basically captured the alien. They they took it to a local hospital and they they tested it out. And then all of a sudden the US Air Force came in. They 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 captured the alien from the local officials and they took the spacecraft and they told everybody they're not allowed to talk about it. And there was this kind of like this US government cover up. And but this town is now centered around this story. Like you go and they actually have like monuments to the alien. It's it's quite a fascinating, and this is no small city. It's like 150,000 people there in the city. So he 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 actually went to the city and interviewed people that were on the ground in 1996, and their story is very compelling. Like if they are lying, they're very good actors and actresses. And then they did get some people on uh, anonymity that just refused to show their face. They basically they brought them in like the black mask, you know, but they they blurred out the face. They put them like in the black just, mask. Yeah, yeah. They <laughs> they, Mike, they didn't do the for black Mike mask. And JD but, faithful. They you guys yeah. know what that means. Yes. So they distorted the voice. They did the whole thing, and it was it was such a fascinating movie because if that's just one big lie, they're getting an entire city to buy into this lie, including government officials and the mayor. Right. Um, they they are there. It seems like they're all in on it. And they're saying that the U.S. Air Force came and kind of uh, took their took their little alien guy and took their spacecraft and uh, and told everybody to shut up about it. I love the story, sir. The problem is that's also the plot of the movie E.T. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it, Literally, it, it just didn't have – it just <laughs> clearly was not written by Steven Spielberg with the right. little kid having the emotional connection with the alien. Yeah, they – that is like the same exact story. Yeah, no. So in this one, it's like uh, captured by military officials, and they talk to one of the military officials, and they drive it to a hospital. They run some tests That's on what it. Happens and... in ET. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> same thing happens. But thirteen years later, right? Yeah, it's. I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna go watch this movie now because you told me to. It, I won't be able to sleep for a month. I know it's quite fascinating uh, the you. whole the whole alien discourse, and I'm glad that we finally got to talk about it. Oh yes, yes. So. This is why you come to listen to the JD and Mike show and listen to <laughs> us ramble on about alien UFOs and stuff like that for time. Yeah. yeah. So, well, speaking speaking of aliens, um, rest in peace, Iron Sheik. Um, I don't know why I said speaking of aliens. I but, was wondering uh, where you were going with that one. <laughs> I, it's, I typically do good in my transitions, um, but that was not one of them. Um, so let's go and get it. Uh, let's go and get into the Iron Sheik, man, because I really want to get some of your insight because I think that you kind of you have a little bit of a connection to the Iron Sheik, uh, just as a small, wrestling yeah. world, you know, small mm-hmm. connection. Um, but he uh, was Hossein Khosro Ali Vaziri, better known uh, as the Iron Sheik. He passed away on June seventh, two thousand and twenty-three. Uh, although his passport read March 15, 1942, he celebrated his birthday September 9th because there's different types of calendars that they that they went by. Um, he was uh, born and raised in Iran. He idolized Olympic gold medalist uh, wrestler uh, Golamreza Takti. Um, he better was known by as Takti in the in the wrestling community. Um, that was his hero and mentor, and he died in 1968. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, the government ruled that his death was a suicide, however, many people believe that he was murdered due to his political activities against the Pavlovi uh, regime. So um, did you watch the Iron Sheik documentary? No, I did not. I I'm, I, no. I regret that. I'm going to have to go back and watch that. You, I know, big documentary watch, guy. I keep living ever yeah. seen that one. Yeah. Well, watch the – so this was the one that they they commissioned independently. The so it's yeah, not a yeah. WWE. Yeah, it's the kids from Toronto. Um, so he competed in the – right? 
they, they, yeah, they yeah. Yeah, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he competed in the 1968 Olympics, held in Mexico City. Although he was billed as having been a 1968 Olympic medalist, he was actually eliminated during Iran's trials. But he yeah. did go to the Olympics, yeah. He, um, he I think he was just part like he, helping out the team. He was probably carrying towels or something. He might have been he might have been a workout partner, but he did yeah. not in fact go to the Olympic Games. Right. Continue. Uh and then he moved to the United States where he won the AAU gold medal at 100 point uh Five 180.5 pounds in 1971. Um, that was the Olympic medal that he always carried around his neck whenever he'd do all his uh, interviews later in life. So uh, before we get into his pro wrestling stuff, you know, what what was the Sheik like as a wrestler, man? Because uh, he always – everybody was talking about him like he was like this legit superstar wrestler before he got into pro wrestling. So he's a Greco guy. Um, that's the sport that I was coaching this, this past week. Greco and freestyle are what it done in the Olympics. It's very different than what – um, you would see at college or high school wrestling in the United States. The style is different. Greco specifically is supposed to relate back to what wrestling was like, um, you know, 2000 years ago in the original Olympic Games you, where you didn't touch the legs. So Greco-Roman is an all upper body style where you can't, what we would call a shoot for your mega and amateur wrestling as you cannot shoot in and secure a leg. You can only wrestle up top. The United States is traditionally God awful at Greco-Roman wrestling. Like if you go back and look at the results for freestyle versus Greco-Roman, it's it's night and day. We are very good in freestyle and goddamn awful at Greco. <laughs> like I say this is a big part of the community. We do not do a very good job at the senior level. We and and never have. So the Sheik's coin claim of being a, a competitor in the 68 games. Um, Iran, Iran today is one of, is the, probably the second or third best country in the world with freestyle wrestling. Cause it's always, it's traditionally, uh, Russia, number one, Russia is fantastic and the U S and, um, Iran kind of trade off second and third. So uh, the Iranian program today is just absolutely awesome. I, I, I love the way the Iranians wrestle. They're very big on underhook attacks, freestyle. Their freestyle program is great. Their Greco program is not as good, but solid better than the U S but you know, everyone's playing, everyone's playing catch up to the Russians. So they're very good at the time. Not as good. So the Sheik, being a Greco guy, he doesn't make the team defects in 68. Right. This is what mm-hmm. um, comes over here and he wins an AAU title. He wins an AAU national title, um, but he can't compete for our Greco team because he's not a citizen at the time. They were a lot stricter on how things were going in the sixties than they are now. Now he would come in and they'd be like, yeah, welcome aboard. It's, it's everywhere. Like guys who can't make the Russian team defect and join block nations all the time. So yeah. uh, in 72, this is what the claim has always been that the Sheik was a coach on the 72 team. The 72 yeah. Olympics are, I, I, and I cannot verify this, but there's a lot of sources that say he he helped out in some way, shape, or form. He was not the coach. He was not a coach, but he was on the staff, apparently, of the 72 um, Olympic Games. The 72 Olympics are probably one of the most important Olympic Games in history because that's the Munich Games, right? That's mm-hmm. the ones where Black September and the, the awful tragedy that, that befell the Israeli team out there. It's also the Olympics of Mark Spitz, where he broke all the records. Uh, Steve Prefontaine. Right for you know, guys have seen the movie Prefontaine. It's phenomenal. Go see the movie Prefontaine. It's, it's old, but it's really good. Um, the runner and in wrestling, Dan Gable was in 1972 Olympics, which is our one of our greatest uh, um, wrestlers. Dan Gable is basically what if what if Michael Jordan? And I'm a Chicago guy, so this is my my reference. What if Michael Jordan became Phil Jackson? So he's the greatest competitor ever that became the greatest coach ever. 
Kelsey Anderson has actually surpassed that. But Gable was great. And then that was the year the U.S. really showed out. We had three gold medalists, two three gold medalists, two silver medalists, and then Chris Taylor, who went on a pro wrestle, 400-pound heavyweight. Uh, in Greco, where the Sheik was an Olympic coach, we didn't have a single medalist. I don't think anybody so won a match. Is it pretty safe to say that if he, they did let him be on the team, if he was able to get his citizenship, that he very likely would have made that team and he would have been on the Maybe. Olympic, the American Olympic team. Because if he's coming from Iran as a Greco guy and U.S. as like a much worse Greco team, I mean, it's you know, it's probably like he probably could have made that team, right, and wrestled in 1972. Like I'm looking at his weight class. So he probably would have been in 90 kilos. Um uh, who do we have with the U.S.? Nah, Wayne Bowman was the guy at the time. I don't think he – I don't know. Maybe he beats him. Like, maybe not. It's hard to say. Like, I'm, I'm they have the brackets up on Wikipedia, so I'm looking on here. <sighs> maybe. Maybe. It's hard to tell because, like, there's no footage from this stuff, right? It's yeah. all – which is why it's so easy to go, you know, this guy did this and this, this. And it's Greco where we're bad and the tournaments – the tournament format was really weird back in the day and that's always and it's always easy to to say you did something when something else really big was happening that would have taken attention away so gable was a dan gable was a uh, a media sensation because he's he didn't have a point scored him on the olympics right it never it had never been done before like he had like six matches and nobody nobody scored a point on him he was an absolute murderer so it's easy to say yeah i was i was a coach on the not 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 the, not the freestyle staff but gable i was on the greco staff and everyone's yeah. like, oh, okay, nobody pays attention to Greco, right? <laughs> so it's yeah. real – I mean, like, am I disqual? I mean, like, it, it, and there's also those AAU records are sketchy too. So it's like, did he win it? Is, Probably, but, is, you know. Is mm-hmm. AAU a lot like Golden Gloves and boxing? A, uh, no. The AAU okay. currently has zero power in amateur wrestling in the United States. Zero. Okay. The All of wrestling – and all the amateur wrestling in the U.S. is based out of USA Wrestling, which is what I'm wearing right now. It's USA Wrestling thing. Um, USA Wrestling overtook AAU probably a little bit around this time or after this time. I know Iowa, their little kid stuff still run through AAU, but that's like it. USA Wrestling controls just about everything. And there's some AAU stuff, but it's, 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 it's not nothing, but it's like almost nothing beyond the little kid scene in the U.S. And it's been that way for a long long time like a uh, reed flair when the famous rick flair uh doesn't go to nitro story because mm-hmm. his yeah. kid was winning a tournament it was an aau tournament and it was probably okay. the last big aau tournament that anybody paid attention to right nobody cares about the aau <laughs> right no i mean uh, they could have a yeah. national tournament tomorrow we have national tournaments all the time i've never met a 12 year old who isn't a national champion like it they national titles don't matter like they really don't when unless it's the big one the big usa wrestling one so right. eh, like a lot of these a lot of these things that were said were kind of sketchy but he had a background he was pretty good it was good enough for Vern Gagne to go yeah let's bring you in because <clears> minnesota <throat> has always been the hub of greco-roman wrestling in the united states mm-hmm. and he brad Raggins was a legit really good greco guy and he trained a lot of people through Vern. So the fact that the sheet came up wrestling through under Vern in the AWA makes perfect sense because yeah. to this day, to this day, Minnesota, we beat him today. It was awesome. Minnesota is the hub of Greco in the U S. 
Yeah, so I was uh, putting the notes together. So he was invited by Vern Gagne to train and become a wrestler while coaching the U.S. national team. He wasn't the coach, but he was probably like a, a, a guy there. He was a guy. A workout he was a, partner. Yeah. He's probably a workout partner. He's probably a glorified yeah. workout partner that got to sit in the corner. Yeah. He started a training in 1972, same class as Ric Flair. And then um, after he graduated or after he finished wrestling school, he uh, he stayed on to, to help train a lot of people. And I think Ricky Steamboat was the guy that he helped train and – uh, some of the other folks, uh, Ganya, uh, and some of the other folks that came through the AWA camp there with Vern. Uh, he started in uh, out in AWA wrestling as an underneath babyface, and then eventually became the Iron Sheik, essentially uh, taking uh, the Sheik's gimmick from uh, from Detroit. So you just read the Sheik's I did. book, right? So I did. did he? Did they ever mention like was there yes. heat between the Iron Sheik and the original yeah. Sheik? As oh, a matter wow. of as a matter of fact, there was at first. He called the Sheik a jabroni. He's a thief. He hated the guy because the Sheik got really famous. Uh, the Iron Sheik got yeah. really famous at a time when the Sheik had pretty much because the end of the book really talks about how Sheik destroyed the Detroit territory because he booked himself on top to kill everybody and he was a villain, right? And it got mm-hmm. really, really old. And it's just it's a really good book. It's a really good examination of a human, um, that being Ed Farhat, the the original Sheik, and. He really he hated the sheik because not just not just that he took the gimmick, but he took the boots. He took the the kaifa. I can't pronounce it. The the headdress, like everything. And he took everything. The only thing he didn't do was throw fire. And like the sheik was really really mad about it. And here's the most interesting part to me about this story. Sabu, when Sabu got big, I don't know if you've heard if you've heard the story. Please stop me. When Sabu first started getting big on the independence, WWF at the time brought him in for a trial and offered him a contract. Like Sabu was all about it. The character they wanted him to play was a mute Middle Easterner who wore a mask over his mouth, very similar to the one he wore in the Hannibal Lecter thing he wore in ECW, right? When he would come out to the ring Mm -hmm. and he would be the nephew of the Iron Sheik. And the character only knew that one, right? Well, 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 the character would be called the Sultan. Oh, the same one that played by Rikishi in nineteen ninety seven. They offered they offered that to Sabu in nineteen ninety four, mm-hmm. and Sabu turned it down because he said that would kill my uncle. That would yeah. kill my uncle if I had to pretend the Iron Sheik was my real uncle because the Sheik hated him. Now, that's fascinating to me because they always heard the talk of creative services creating all these characters and they just stay in a binder <laughs> like the Ringmaster. Yeah. The Sultan was one of them, and it was meant for Sabu which was super interesting. So Sabu turns that down and goes on and be just is Sabu. We see that eventually. And I guess toward the end of his life, the Sheik kind of made amends with the Iron Sheik. So, you know, that guy made it his own. It's really not the same gimmick. It's, it's just yeah. being Arab, right? The Sheik eventually yeah. was able to let go of it and kind of be, be on, on good terms with it. I don't know if the two of them knew each other at all or if they ever spoke, but I mean, it was interesting because there's ty- there was territories that the Iron Sheik would go into, and they couldn't call him the Iron Sheik because the Sheik had left such an indelible mark upon that territory until yeah. rock and wrestling comes, and the Iron Sheik becomes a, a yeah. legend in the era. He he became he becomes too famous everywhere. It's where you can't mm-hmm. deny him the Iron Sheik name. But yeah, that is interesting because he started he he so he wrestled as the underneath babyface. He becomes the Iron Sheik. This is in like the mid seventies. And then he he goes to he goes to uh, New York. He goes to WWF, and then eventually goes to Crockett, Mid South, Florida, Portland. Portland is where he really started to have a run. Uh, Jim Valley this week on the Wrestling Observer Live or the Portland Wrestlecast, excuse me, 
Um, he uh, he actually did a great job and actually played some of the audio from that. He had a really great feud with a uh, Dutch Savage there in uh, in Portland for like six months. He did Georgia, um, and he you know he took the Iron Sheik character, but not everywhere he, they was he able to actually take the Iron Sheik name because they had so much respect for the Sheik. Now the Sheik wasn't the original kind of like Middle Eastern character out there, but he was the one that was the most famous. I think the only thing that Iron Sheik took from him was probably just the Sheik name. No, he took the boots, the look. Like the Sheik, oh, okay. the Iron Sheik's look is the Sheik's look. The only with, difference with the boots, with the kaifa, I, I'm keeps. I'm sorry, I'm the stupid yeah. white guy. I keep I'm pronouncing it wrong. The head, the headdress. That was all from the Sheik of Araby, which was what the Sheik yeah. originally went by, because he was going by that in the fifties, right? And he yeah. based a lot of himself on the character of Alibaba, right? Mm-hmm. Alibaba was a big star in the thirties and forties, who was the first Middle Eastern guy to win world, like win a world title. So there was a there was a Middle Eastern style wrestler, but the Sheik really with the boots, with the look, like he really kind of left an impression as that guy. And the Sheik, the, the Sheik was never as violent, right? Uh, the Iron mm-hmm. Sheik, excuse me, Sheiky baby was never as violent as the original Sheik and he never threw fireballs. Yeah. But the look, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. Well, yeah, it stole it and it worked. <laughs> it did. It was it, a good it, gimmick. It worked. Yeah. Uh, he actually ends up rejoining the, the WWF in 83, um, it became the only Iranian champion in WWE history, uh, WWF. He won the world title, uh, beating Bob Backlund when his manager Arlen Scotland threw in the towel. And then he lost the title a few weeks later to Hulk Hogan, which led to the boom of Hulkamania. And then in 1984, Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter had, letter, had a legendary feud that culminated in a boot camp match on June 16th. Um, that was that was a fantastic feud, and that's really where that kind of put like certain slaughter was a, a big star before that, but that really springboarded him into kind of like becoming a huge star. And then eventually he got the GI Joe deal. Um, and he left wrestling for a while. The actually he just went to the AWA. Like he still did oh, independent and stuff. He, like that's, he was in the AWA. Yes. He was in the he, AWA. Yeah, he, so he might yeah. as well have left wrestling by going yeah, to the AWA yeah. in that I just, era. I should have said he just left WWF because yeah, he yeah. went, he just went back to Vern and then, but he, he yeah. stayed the character. But without, I mean, I don't think it's re- unreasonable to say because Slaughter was a heel, right? Mm-hmm. He's the yep. heel of drill structure. It was the feud with the. Sh- it's weird they didn't give that all to Hogan, but I mean, like that's the feud that really, like you said, puts Slaughter on the map. There is no GI yeah. Joe deal for Slaughter without the Iron Sheik feud. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Hulk Hogan doesn't have a major feud during his first year as WWF champion. No, he just so he he just beat people pretty easily. Everywhere he just and he worked yeah. basically he basically works Sheik Stud, Orndorff, and I think it's uh, like Adrian Adonis. Like he just works mm-hmm. a handful of the same guys around while they're while they're invading all these territories. But there's no program. Like people are always like, "Oh, you need stories. You need stories." WWF tells stories. There was no story other than Hulk Hogan is the biggest star in the world. See yeah. Hulk Hogan kill somebody, but there was no rivalry. Hogan doesn't have a rivalry till Piper in '85. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yeah, it's and you know, and I thought we were going to get the Ventura rivalry, but then of course Ventura, yeah, the medical mm, issue they that might have happened. That might, yeah. He does work Jesse a lot in '84. I forgot yeah. about that. He does work yeah. a lot of Jesse, but Jesse's body kind of kind of fails him. But yeah, until until we go all in on rock and wrestling. There is no Hogan program that we would think of. It's just that's absolutely fascinating to me. Not even with the Sheik, because you think him and yeah. the Sheik could have feuded, you know, USA versus Iran thing, because they did it with Slaughter. 
Right. Yeah, it's but so I don't think. Well, because Slaughter could sell for the Sheik, and they didn't want Hogan selling for, for anybody. Hogan would sell yeah. a little bit in the match, but you couldn't get too much heat on Hogan because he had to look like he was all powerful. That's what they mm-hmm. were building him up to be. Um, and then that's where they were coming in with the Monster Heel of the Month. They mm-hmm. they didn't see Sheik as that. I mean, when Hogan won the title, he sold a little bit. He got into the camel clutch, but he beat Sheik. Beat Sheik pretty quickly. Yeah, and like, mm-hmm. and they just never went. They never. I think they probably did the match a couple of times after that, but they never yeah, really they went to it as like a feud where no. there was never. They never had a match where anybody ever thought that the Sheik might win. I mean, it's not uncommon because when when I, I saw that when we talked about Graham last week, I saw the Backlund Graham match. It's not super long, but it's not super short either. Like when Bruno won the title from from Buddy Rogers, it was like seconds. This you know, believe what you want. Buddy was in bad shape. But then when he yeah. wins it from Stan Stasiak, it's short too, though. Like, so mm-hmm. they kind of established him the same way they established Bruno. But, I mean, Bruno was the overcoming people's champion, right? Where Hogan's just like – I mean, Hogan got big because he was selling for the monsters. And then he would have the yeah. superhero comeback. But, yeah, you said it just doesn't – that's just not the thing that first year of the title reign. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so from there, he forms a tag team with Nikolai Volkov. They won the WWF titles. Um, they did the whole uh, national anthem gimmick there. And then in 1987, uh, Sheik and Hacksaw Jim Duggan, they got arrested on the New Jersey Turnpike heading over to um, Asbury Park, New Jersey, a WWF uh, show. And they pulled they pulled over because Duggan was drinking and driving. He had a – I think he was, they, the cops saw him have a beer or something like that. They saw that there was a beer, and then Duggan was driving – they pulled it over. They 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 talked to him about that. They asked him if he's got anything on him. Duggan says, "Yeah, I got uh, got a little bit of marijuana on him. No big deal." Then they they search the sheik, and sheik has some cocaine on him. Um, and this is a quote from uh, from Hacksaw. I just thought this was funny. Go. They search the sheik, and he's got three grams of cocaine, and that's a felony. I had a misdemeanor for less than half an ounce of marijuana, and I got a ticket for that. I got a ticket for drinking while driving. A sheik got arrested for felony cocaine. And he had to go in front of the judge, and I stayed like a jabroni and waited for him. He got bonded out and went to the show, but I was over 21. I got to take responsibility. Uh, I was dumb and stupid. And uh, also there was a note in the AP story from uh, 1987 that Duggan's dad was the chief of police in uh, Glens Glens Falls, Falls, New York. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. James Duggan, the chief of police. So he was in, he got heat from Vince. He got heat from his family. He got heat from everybody. Uh, Both guys got arrested. Um, Hacksaw ends up coming back a few months later. I think Sheik ended up going to uh, he, he went to world class. I think world he ended class. up in WCW. Yeah. yeah. And then he, uh, he came. He, he, yeah, he goes he to WCW after. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, he comes back. Well, she comes back in 88 and then he gets bounced again. And then yeah. he goes with WCW. That's when he had that contract. He was, she was getting six figures in, in WCW and was used like six times. He was the OG Poffo. Yeah. He was. Yeah. He was. They say that that arrest is what kind of derailed Duggan because when Duggan comes into WWF in 87, it's the UWF Duggan. Mm-hmm. Right. He's a little more serious, a little like a little less, yo, tough guy. You know, he's just, you know, ass kicking Jim, du- Jim Duggan. And when he comes back in SummerSlam 88 is when Duggan comes back. That's really when uh, he starts getting the cartoon Duggan. Right. He doesn't really have he really isn't that ass kicking baby face that he was in UWF Mid-South. Right. Yeah. OK. I just got a, a message from our guest for tonight that they are wrapping up. So okay. he can pop by any moment. So we'll just keep talking about the okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep. Yeah. So go ahead, finish what you're saying. No, I was saying, yeah. So like that. And again, they got shit too, because Babyface and Heel are traveling together. Even in <laughs> WWF in 1987, they got yeah. a lot of shit for that. 
Right. And even Duggan, I've heard Duggan interview about this saying, you know, I really didn't know Sheik all that well. He needed a ride and I was just dumb enough to say, sure, hop in. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> what, <laughs> what, it's one of those great what ifs. What if yeah. he told the Sheik to get bent and just kept driving? Like, how <laughs> how is the world different to professional wrestling? So Sheik tells the story very differently. He tells it as like, well, he goes, I was just trying to be sociable with that dumb Irishman, Jim Duggan. And he, and he you know, basically convinced me to take the drugs. And it's like, okay, Sheik. <laughs> Uh, the she, a the she, worker to his finest to his final to his final death um so yeah he uh he got fired he came back in 91 as colonel mustafa in the and the sergeant slaughter uh feud with hulk hogan um he got bounced again and then he gets inducted into the hall of fame wwf hall of fame or wwe hall of fame in 2005 and then after 2005 um he became I would say one of the early uh, YouTube and social media sensations just from his shoot videos because he would be saying all these crazy and outlandish screaming promos on Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior and Randy Savage and and B. Brian Blair. He actually did a bunch of or he did some um, he had some spots on Howard Stern where uh, there was I tried to clip some of it, but I was thinking I was like, maybe I get like a little small clip and it'd be good. But even every small clip would somehow end up being way too inappropriate for modern airtimes, and I don't want to get fired. So yeah. I didn't clip any of it, but some of it was just so outrageous. I thought it would be fun to listen back to it, and I, <clears throat> but it was way too outrageous to have for the air. Um, but uh, there, was, there, was one, there was one where he's, uh, he's going to have a contest with a Bubba the Love Sponge, a ring toss contest. I don't want to say what kind of ring toss because even that is inappropriate for air. But he's going to do a game of ring toss with Bubba the Love Sponge, and they bring Bubba out. Bubba's a piece of crap, by the way. Mm-hmm. And he comes out, and he's trying to cut a promo on the Sheik, and Sheik's cutting a promo on him back. And um, Bubba goes, you're not even an Olympic gold medalist. The only Olympic gold medalist in pro wrestling history is Kurt Angle, and that ain't you. And then he goes, he goes I'm AAU gold medalist. And he goes, oh, well, you know what? That's not a big deal. I wrestled AAU. And then she goes, what? Wait. And Bubba said, you know, I think it might have been like 190. You know, that 190. And she goes, well, what the fuck happened? You used to be 190. Now you're a fat piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the fun. I mean, like the stuff he says, it just completely inappropriate. Yeah. But everybody, yeah. if you're listening to the show, there's a pretty good chance you followed the Sheik's Twitter and just laugh yeah. at the ridiculous things that he wouldn't really say and that's the whole point yeah. is that she had a second life really as a meme right yes he became one of the first like meme celebrities mm-hmm. i i think he's i'm gonna say this i hope i don't get in trouble but i think to like younger people he's more famous for the memes than he ever was for his pro wrestling oh absolutely. i think like like i'm 40 so i knew of him at like i i knew of him as a pro wrestler but I didn't really live through like his heyday, like his heyday came before I was ever a fan. So I, I got to know him more just by seeing him on YouTube and all his shoot promos that he would do and his appearances on Howard Stern and, and on Kimmel and all the places that he would do his stuff. It's just kind of like a, a crazy old Iranian guy cussing about humbling people and all the crazy stuff that he would do and just and him tweeting about fuck Hulk Hogan every couple of days. Do you know where I first discovered the Iron Sheik? What is that? Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. Oh, there you go. Yeah, he was on that. 
Well, I watched his I character watched, was on it. He didn't the do the character. Voice, but, correct. Yeah. He is. Uh, that is how I discovered really pro wrestling. And I watched Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling years before I ever watched a match. So all these characters of Andre, the giant and junkyard dog, Rowdy Piper, Hulk Hogan were in my lexicon long before I ever saw WWF television. Right. So like I had, like I've had, I, I didn't know he was the iron Sheik as a kid that he was the Sheik. So like when I got older and started learning wrestling, I was way confused, but like, it's funny to me that because of that, a generation of kids really didn't know who the real, who the original Sheik was mm-hmm. and were introduced to that version of the iron Sheik. Right. As the, which was the plan, right. Is you, yeah. you bait these little kids into becoming wrestling fans. And in my case, it worked. So I just thought that was, I don't know, man, this is a guy who had a very interesting life, right? Yeah. Like a wild and tragic life, successes, a bunch of mm-hmm. failures, drug addiction. His his or his daughter was murdered, right? Yeah, that's and crazy. That, just a crazy, 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 crazy story. And like, a, you know, those two kids that have been running his social media and kind of been taking care of him and... They've kind of like they reeled him back in and got him to stop saying all of the inappropriate and horrifically crazy things that he was saying on those shoot promos, reeled him in and kind of like tried to rebrand his image on Twitter a little bit. Um, and, th- and they did a really good job. They rebranded him as America's crazy uncle. Yeah. Right. Like that's the yeah. g- that was the Iron Sheik on Twitter gimmick is he was just he was like your crazy uncle at the Thanksgiving table, except he was way more. way Well, maybe not more expletives, but definitely a little bit more of like the broken English stuff. And it was <laughs> yeah. almost always hilarious on Twitter specifically, almost yeah. always hilarious. So, you know, I don't know if we should. Yeah. You know, what? let's go and ask this question. Sure. Should they keep the Twitter account going? Yeah. I think they should, right? Yeah. yeah. Then it becomes like the best of the Iron Sheik. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like he's tweeting from heaven or something right. like that, or wherever you think he might be, uh, based John, on some of the awful things he said. <laughs> John Fugelsang retweeted a thing that where the Sheik insulted him from 2013. <clears throat> it was yeah. like, rest in peace to it. Like, so it was something like rest in peace to one of my favorite gimmicks of all time. Something like that. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> he was, I don't know, the way he would just go after random, like, celebrities. And it wasn't even him. Again, it's the... But you buy into the meme because you could almost believe you you read his tweets in his voice. Yes, right. Yes, you couldn't you couldn't help it. Again, when you read Twitter, you read all most time you read that stuff in your own voice, not the Sheik, man. Rest in peace, Iron Sheik. Uh, There will never be another one like him. That's probably for the best. Um, But he was he was he was a wild and crazy guy, but a legendary figure and an interesting guy. But hey, guys, I wanna um, I wanna bring on our our guest, a very special guest that JD and I have been uh, over in the Voices of Wrestling Discord, and we've gotten to know uh, Joe Lanza a little bit. He hosts the the Voices of Wrestling podcast. Have been around a long time. Um, he is a fellow grass toucher and a sex haver. Joe Lanza, how are you doing, man? I have so much sex. You have no idea. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I, I'm about to go have some sex right now when I'm done with this podcast. So you you nailed that. Thank you very much. Yeah, but no, <laughs> yeah. good for you. I'm uh I'm happy to be here. I'm um um flattered that you invited me. I actually just wrapped up my own nearly four hour flagship podcast tonight, <laughs> just minutes before I jumped on with you guys. So uh, I'm just cracking open another Coke Z, filling up on the caffeine, and I'm ready to go. 
Yeah, boy, we are we are part of the Coke family here too, uh, on on the Mike and JD show. Hey, so uh, the first thing I want to talk to you about uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, you were talking about you know we're you're basically putting a bow on this whole CM Punk brawl out collision, all the bullshit that happened, and um, I I thought you you had a you took an interesting position here that uh, CM Punk he didn't get everything that he wanted in the resolution of brawl out, and in fact. The Young Bucks and the Elite and those guys, they actually got some consolations here too. Yeah, I just feel like it's not really my position. It's more things that I've been told from talking to people in and around the company. And I just felt like there seems to be sort of this narrative that CM Punk has bullied Tony Khan or has forced his way back into the company and is, is, is seems to be getting his way here in this scenario. And there are a lot of concessions that CM Punk has had to make in order just to return. Um, he's wanted to return this entire time. This hasn't been a situation where Tony Khan or AEW have been begging CM Punk to come back and he's making all these wild demands and, and they're conceding to his demands. He's wanted to come back. And it wasn't his idea to do any kind of split roster or be segregated to a show on Saturdays or anything like that. Uh, That's one area where I guess you can say he hasn't gotten a quote unquote win. He just wants to come back and wrestle. Um, I was told that, and I don't know. I mean, I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago and I don't know if anyone else necessarily has reported it, but I was told that he apologized to Tony Khan a long time ago for his actions at the press conference. And I want to make that distinction, not necessarily for his actions in the fight, Mm -hmm. but he did apologize to Tony Khan for his actions at the press conference. And in fact, he has told people close to him that he considers that the worst decision and worst day of his life, his actions at the press conference. So I don't know if people necessarily know that. Um, and it's not as if I'm some kind of punk defender or I'm someone who um, is part of the quote unquote punk camp or likes to spread, you know, punk's propaganda. I've been very hard on punk. I mean, for people who listen to my show, I, we've buried him underneath the earth when it's been warranted. And he's handled a lot of this situation very poorly. I think we would all agree to facets of that. But um, in this particular scenario, I mean, he just wanted to come back to work. I mean, he 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 attempted to reach out to the young bucks and the bucks don't want anything to do with him. And I believe rightfully so. I mean, the guy goes on the presser. He says, if you have a problem, come see me. And then they come see him with company representatives and (laughs) they end up getting the shit kicked out of them. And, you know, uh, I guess who won the fight is immaterial, but I could see where the punks, where where, uh, the punks, I could see where the Bucks <laughs> Freudian slip, Freudian slip. Yeah. I could I could see where the Bucks wouldn't want anything to do with this guy. I mean, he mm. he comes across like a raving lunatic and a hypocrite. So he did try to reach out to them at some point. I don't know for what. I'm not going to pretend to know what he wanted to communicate uh, with them. I I it could have been to apologize. It could have been, but at the same time, based on people I talk to, I get the impression he's not necessarily sorry about the fight. He is sorry about his actions at the press conference. Um, Another big thing that I've been told is in Punk's mind, he feels like people should be able to get over the fight. Because to Mm -hmm. him, it's an old school wrestling thing. Sometimes you throw fists. 
It's not like a job where you're in a cubicle or at the, you know, at the office where it's completely unheard of. This is pro wrestling. It's a different environment. And in his eyes, it's like this shit just happens sometimes. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I work blue here? I don't know if I could. Fuck yeah. Fuck shit. Cock. Yeah. Yeah. All right. right. Tremendous. Uh, (laughs) That's perfect for me. Um, But yeah, no, his view is he he thinks that everyone should just be able to get over the fight. But I can understand why the Bucks might have a different stance on that. I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I totally understand why they're like, absolutely not. This man is crazy. And, you know, and look at the position he put us all in and he nearly got us fired and we got chairs thrown at us and Kenny Omega got bit. And so (laughs) I understand every position here. The other thing Punk wanted was for Ace Steel to have his job back and be on the road. And that has not happened. That's another area where mm-hmm. Punk is not getting his way. Uh, a Steel, as Meltzer reported, I think he was the first one to have it. Steel has been back for a number of weeks, but he's working remotely at home. Punk wanted Steel on the road. That's not happening. And the elite are not having that. That's the elite do not want a Steel in these buildings. And they won that one as well. So it's like this idea that Punk is just pushing Khan around and getting his way. I mean, and right down to those to the now infamous legal documents that everyone was talking about a few weeks ago, <laughs> the legal documents where it was, you know, uh, uh, Tony Khan had to threaten CM Punk and force him to come back to work. And it was none of that punk, as I said, has wanted to come back to work. The legal documents were nothing more than uh, ensuring that CM Punk does not speak about brawl out either on air or to media or elsewhere and basic legal crossing T's, dotting I's, ensuring that you work on Saturdays now, whereas the original uh, working agreement may have had different details. It was nothing where it was threats or uh, these guys are at odds. In fact, I have been told that ever since uh, the contentious couple of days where the Ace Steel situation uh, blew up uh, the day before the, uh, the WBD upfronts, Ever since then, that Punk and Khan have had a great working relationship or and are in a great place right now as we head into collision. So I don't know. That was a really long answer, and I don't even know if I answered your question. But. No, you did. No, totally. Yeah. It, it, the, the narrative that we had heard from Lightning, there's these are just like fan speculation stuff, was that Punk was manipulating this because he wanted to go back to WWE, and this was him throwing his weight around, and he was basically daring Tony to get a release. And it just seemed so far-fetched to me, and we talked about it a lot on this show, that it didn't it didn't make sense. Like he does seem like he still seems like social persona and grata over there. It's interesting to hear, like, we both like your take on this because it did seem like he's given up a lot. You know, it's negotiation, right? Everyone, like, it's that King Solomon story. You split the kid in half. You know, what are we What are we going to get here? And it yeah. just seems like that makes a lot more sense than Tony Khan just rolled over for CM Punk. No, I, 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 I've never heard anything about Punk trying to be in a pain in the ass and force a release. I've never heard anything like that. Um, can I sit here and tell you definitively that there haven't been days or times where CM Punk has told people, ah, fuck this. They should just fire me. I've had an, I don't know. I maybe it's CM Punk. I mean, right. <laughs> the winds can blow a different way and he can, we look, we all know he's very temperamental and emotional and and you know so so i don't that's very possible i personally have never heard that though 
You know, I think that one of the fascinating things about T- CM Punk being so temperamental, um, and he's a hard guy to read, is because he doesn't drink. You know, like at least like when someone gets drunk and they're being an asshole, it's like, oh, well, maybe he maybe if he stops drinking, he'll be better. But this guy doesn't even drink. He's just kind of like this is just him. He's got kind of a he's got that kind of personality. I don't think the Young Bucks know what to do with him because the Young Bucks, to me, come across as very passive aggressive. And he just isn't like that. He'll just tell you to eat shit. And some people like that are hard to deal with. And it feels like that's the situation here where he's coming from this different generation where they're very in your face about stuff and they'll tell you exactly what they think. But some of these newer guys that they kind of came up differently, they don't really like to do that. It's kind of a, a, a unique thing and that he's really trying to he's having a hard time navigating the, the politics of that locker room. Well, it's funny because I don't think the Bucks drink either. No, I don't think so. Maybe these guys all just need to go out and get blasted together or something. But I mean, I, it's funny because I don't drink, so I don't even know what it's like to be drunk. But uh, me either. <laughs> so yeah. none of us drink, but we're criticizing these guys for not drinking. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, look, I could totally see where the Bucks and Punk would not get along. Um, I know that there is a contingent of the locker room who have Punk fatigue and they're just tired of the shit. And Mm -hmm. I know that there's a contingent, a smaller contingent of the locker room, I should note, that I hear think that the Bucks are, like you just said, passive aggressive, and they're not too fond of them. And then there's a larger group in the locker room, and probably the largest group, from what I understand. And I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice. I've done like seven hours of audio today. There's a a larger group in in the largest group of all in that locker room are people who genuinely don't think it's any of their business and they just want to come to work and wrestle. And they might have opinions on what went down, but they're not sharing them. They don't think it's their place to share them. And at the end of the day, they think it's the elite and punk's business and not theirs. And they just want to be told when to come to work. And there seems to also be this idea that it's just this split in the locker room and everybody's on the side. And that's at least not the impression I get from the people I talk to at all. What now? There there are people who strongly dislike the elite, and there are people who strongly dislike Punk, for sure. But I don't think those sort of tribes are as big as as the perception, as the public perception. Sounds like a workplace where you just don't yeah. like everybody you work with, pretty right. much, or 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 a football team, right? Or or a JD's world, like a, a wrestling team. JD coaches wrestling. Like, of course you're going to get drama, especially when you got a lot of supercharged people. And now you got like athletic people and there's also creative people. Oh, um, yeah. it, be, it, be, it becomes a whole mess and personalities are unique, but I'm really glad that the whole brawl out thing seems to be over. Punk is coming back. And, and Joe, right before we, we went on air here, um, Sean Ross Sapp broke the story that it looks like CM Punk versus Kenta is being discussed. And then JD and I, um, we were talking to somebody else and it looks like it, it's more than a discussion at this point. It actually, you know, it, it could, it could get serious. Have you heard anything about this and what do you think about this? No, I haven't. Um, that would be news to me. Um, I think it's interesting because Kenta has been chirping about that match for years, obviously with the go to sleep and all of that. And Kenta is based in the United States, so it'd be pretty easy to put together. He doesn't keep the full New Japan schedule in Japan, so it's it's a match that makes sense. And if if it's something that Punk wants to do, then I think it would be relatively easy to put together. Um, so that's that's interesting and that's good. I'd be actually 
Kenta is my all-time favorite wrestler. So anytime Kenta can get back in the mix, and I know he's a shell of his former self, and he's kind of reinvented himself as more of a character guy than a uh, than a great bell to bell wrestler with all the injuries. But um, shit, I mean, I'd I'd be all in on a CM Punk Kenta match. That'd be a lot of fun. I think a lot of the AEW fan base remembers Kenta for being Kenta, not this version. Mm-hmm. So I think if you say CM Punk versus Kenta, that's going to rile up a lot of AEW fans, right? That's going to get a lot of people excited that that you know listen to shows like this and watch the program. Or the people yeah. who's or the people who sold out Forbidden Door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of Forbidden Door, we got the the uh, co-main events announced. Uh, CM Punk and Kenta uh, at this point hasn't been announced. It's just a rumor at this point. But uh, oh, so is that what is Sap reporting that that's a potential Forbidden Door match? Punk yes, he's 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 reporting that it's being discussed. That discussed. it's like a discussion. Um, JD and I are hearing that it might be even more serious than just a simple discussion. So right, but we for, don't know forbid, at this point for, for forbidden door. For forbidden door, though, specifically, yeah, yeah. forbidden door. Yeah, oh, that'd be really yeah. cool. Yeah, it's a perfect place to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the two matches have been announced: uh, Danielson versus Okada and Osprey versus Omega. Uh, JD, I haven't asked you about this yet, but I want to get Joe's take first. Joe, what do you think about these two matches being the the co-main events here? I mean, as a filthy smark that I am, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I can put together two better matches on purpose. I really don't think I could, be, you know, based on who you have to work with on the two rosters. I, I, I think it's, it's just those are the, I think most people who are fans of both companies and they're just filthy smarks like I am. I think those are the two matches you would do. I mean, I think it's just perfect. I think Tony Khan is on a mission is on a fucking mission to make Forbidden Door one of the greatest wrestling shows of all time after what he went through last year. And Mm -hmm. one day that story is going to be told. We didn't get the revised version of Forbidden Door last year. We didn't get the third draft. We didn't get the fourth draft. That man, what he went through, no matter what you think of Tony Khan, what he went through putting together that card last year with the injuries and who knew Japan was able to send? He almost didn't get Okada at the end of the day. I mean, that yeah. was a struggle just to get Okada to come in. And then, you know, the Punk Tanahashi match falling apart and all the injuries. And it's still, you know, on paper, it didn't look like a super hot show. And then it ended up being the pay-per-view of the year. And, uh, you know, Dave's poll, I think it won. And some other major polls, I think it won show of the year. It was a great show. And it wasn't even close to the card that they wanted to put together. This year, I think Tony Khan is on a mission to put together more of the kind of card that he intended to put together last year. And I think that's part of the reason Brian Danielson is always sitting at the announcer desk as opposed to in the ring. They basically have him in bubble wrap, packed in storage, making sure he doesn't get hurt (laughs) before this thing happens or bang his head and get another concussion. He lost Mercedes Monet. I mean, she was going to be on Forbidden Door and, and he lost another one. But mm-hmm. when you just look at those top two matches, before you even start talking about CM Punk and Kenta as a possibility, or who who knows what else he has up his sleeve. I saw Orange Cassidy cutting a promo on Zack Sabre Jr. earlier today. So uh, that would be a tremendous match if they could do something like that. But these top two matches, I really genuinely don't think if you know you were fantasy booking this thing, I think most people would probably make those two matches. I mean, it's it, it on paper, it's incredible. I mean, it really does have the potential, those two matches. I mean, if if those two matches are better than what we saw at 
um, I always mix up the names of the pay-per-views. The last one was Double or Nothing. What was the show before that? Revolution? Revolution, Revolution yeah. With MJF and Brian Danielson and the John Moxley uh, Hangman Page match, which I thought were two of the best matches uh, of the year. I mean, these two matches on paper could be better than those two matches, and and that's just mind-blowing. But the last time we saw Osprey and Okada six months ago, they had one of the greatest matches of all time. And when you're talking about Brian Danielson and Kazuchika Okada, that is a legitimate, real dream match. People toss around dream match a lot. That is a legitimate, real dream match for a lot of people. What I love about Forbidden Door is it is for us, the dirty stars. Yes. <laughs> it, makes, it, it makes no apologies, okay? You want to watch people cut community theater promos on each other. You can go watch a roadblock into the line and watch Roman Reigns and the Usos and do their thing. And that's great. If that's what you're into forbidden doors for us, it's for the dirty smarks. It's wall to wall, great wrestling. And when you have two great matches and the thing about Osprey and Omega, I mean, you know, based on the story they're telling that they started at wrestle kingdom. I mean, you've got the best of both worlds there. I mean, you know, you know, I know the big culture war now in wrestling is stories versus matches. Well, that's everything. <laughs> that match has both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, uh, again, long-winded answer here. I'm all hopped up on caffeine. But <laughs> you asked me about those top two matches. Yeah. I don't think you could make two better matches on purpose for that show. Yeah, and I, I, I honestly think they could just do tag matches the rest of the show, and it's still going to be awesome because you got those two top matches. They at the can top get of the away card. with that, but I'm telling you right yeah. now, he's not going to do that. He wants to no. put together the greatest. Show. I'm telling you, he he should have ran a bigger building. And it's funny because after last year's show, I reached out to him. I was all fired up after that show because it was so great. I was like, Tony, fucking run Soldier Field next year. You'll you'll fill yes. it. That show was so good, and you're going to have all your dream matches back on the table. Uh, now, look, maybe I was a little too excited. I don't know if they're going to fill a football stadium, but they could have <laughs> run a bigger building mm-hmm. than they ch- – and, and and based on how quickly they sold it out, I think I'm right. I mean, I think yeah. they undershot it again. Oh, 100%. I was there. I was in the building with that with that show, me and my kid, and there was just this electricity, and it was just – the discourse going into that show was, who is this for? Who does this really appeal to? <laughs> and it's people like us that love pro wrestling, and that's what I like about this company is there's no no successful television program aims to appeal to people who don't like it as much as wrestling thinks that that's what you need to do. Like no other successful show is worried about, well, how do we, how do we get people who don't really like our program to watch this program, right? Every other show is like super steep in continuity. They want people who are invested long-term. And if you are a long-term pro wrestling fan, that show had everything like that show had everything that you have loved about wrestling for years wrapped up in the one. And it was so awesome to be in that building with, a bunch of people who care about wrestling on the same level that I do. And I'm bummed that it's not in Chicago this year, but I just, I can't, I can't wait to see this match. I can't wait to see Danielson mm-hmm. and Okada. Like it's, that's everything I want in pro wrestling right there. And I, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's going to happen. But JD and Joe, don't you guys feel bad about these poor neglected casual fans? Like who's going to think of them? Like, what are they going to do? What are they supposed to like? 
Yeah, I mean, the sh- like I said, <laughs> roadblock into the line is right there for them, or, yeah, or yeah. fully loaded, whatever you know, whatever WWE's doing <laughs> these days. Um, I love citing pay per views that haven't been run since two thousand seven. <laughs> That's something I love to do, but because I, I can never I was, remember the names of shows, it's just a, something I, I struggle with. Because they don't. Matter. I was at fully loaded. I was at fully loaded nineteen ninety eight when it had the contest between Jacqueline and Sable, and they had a best two out of three falls match between The Rock and Triple H. So I am a fully loaded fan from uh, nineteen ninety eight. Anyway. Yeah, I remember, the logo, that, had I, the, I remember the logo. It had the fuzzy <laughs> dice hanging on the mirror of the car or whatever. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I, wa- I wanted to get into Collision. So we've got episode one coming up. We have the, the main event has been announced. Uh, it had been rumored for a little bit, but uh, CM Punk at FTR versus Samoa Joe and uh, Bullet Club Gold. And it looks like CM Punk and Samoa Joe are probably going to be you know, lined up in a feud. I don't know if it's going to lead towards a Ring of Honor pay per view. I don't know how all that's going to shake out, but it looks like uh, CM Punk and Joe, the first feud for uh, for Collision. We got the big main event set. What do you think about Collision, and how is all this going to shake out? So, um, I can tell you guys what I heard today about Ooh. the main event for episode two, which is the oh, same thing on. I've been. No, go go ahead, Joe. Um, just one second. If you're going to break some news, I got to hit the button. Hold on, just a sec. Breaking news. You're so corny. I love the I'm a fucking show off. I'm sorry. I'm a fucking show off. Show's not even called show's not even called Brace for Impact anymore. We really gotta I know it still has the old logo. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. My bad. (laughs) I love the soundboard and I love the pomp and circumstance. The problem is now I feel like an asshole because I already broke this on my own show on my Dynamite it's review okay. uh, six hours ago. So um, It's okay. I, I need to use the excuse to push the button anyway. That's a great button. I got to get a button like that. We got buttons. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I told my audience a couple of weeks ago what the main event of episode one was, was going to be. So I'm pretty confident that they're going to follow through with what – I've been hearing for episode two, which was this somehow this six man tag is going to result in CM Punk versus Jay White week two. Um, That was at least the working plan still as of today. Uh, And and that's what I heard three weeks ago when I was told about the six man for week one. I was also told today that Swerve and Keith Lee will be on week one. uh, Finally, finally having their singles match. If not on week one, at some point, it's been earmarked for collision for a number of weeks now, which is kind of why it's been on ice. So I'm hearing week one for that match as well. And um, the other bit that I got today was that Punk and Samoa Joe will be a long, fully fleshed out program that is going to happen. So I guess this Punk Jay White thing. Now, Punk, Punk went to the New Japan show a couple of months ago where Jay White finished up when he lost to Eddie Kingston. Um, again, I, I, if you put a gun to my head to remember the name of that show, I'd be a dead man. But that was uh, it was when uh, Switchblade lost to Eddie Kingston in California and the, the loser leaves New Japan match. Punk was there and he came away very impressed with Jay White and has been dying to work with him ever since, which is why the first couple weeks of collision here, uh, Punk lobbied to get Jay White over there to work a program with him. And, uh, and, and they're going to do that. But the long term program for Punk is going to be Samoa Joe. And the other bit was, you know, Punk is wanting to work heel. He feels like in a lot of these cities, he's going to get booed. He's Mm -hmm. been pragmatic about that and realistic about it. There's been kind of some pushback. Uh, They want him to work 
babyface as long as possible because they feel like they need that to help sell tickets. If you've seen some of the collision numbers, they're not pretty. Uh, mm-hmm. They're really ugly in terms of some of the Canadian cities in particular. I think Hamilton is still under 1,000 tickets sold, Oof. which is pretty gross. I think they're sitting at yeah. 780 tickets as of last check. Um, and the other cities aren't, you know, Calgary and Newark are doing a little better, but mm. still under 5,000. Um, now, Chicago, you know, they're over 8,000 already. I think by the time uh, the day of the show, they'll be creeping up to 10,000 tickets sold uh, with walk up. And after they announce some more matches, they'll, they'll probably hit 9,000 for sure. And may, they've got an outside chance to get to 10,000, which would be enormous for an AEW TV taping uh, right now. When you consider last night, I think they were under 3,000 for Dynamite in Colorado Springs. So that would be huge. So Chicago's a win, but all we know now is, you know, Chicago seems to still be able to be a town where Punk can draw, but he hasn't had any effect in these other cities yet for these collision dates. And that has to be a little concerning, and I think that's maybe why they're pushing a potential heel turn back a little bit in the plans. Um, But I do expect it to happen at some point. Is collision has collision been announced yet for TSN in Canada? Like, do they have a TV deal for collision in that country? Someone from Canada would know better as though, as far as I know it, the, the, that people in Canada still have no idea how they're going to watch the show. So, so that can't help with trying to sell tickets. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, some of these shows were initially advertised as house rules shows mm-hmm. and then they were switched. Over. So that's, it's a mess. The whole yeah. Canadian thing is a mess, but again, You look at the ticket sales right now in Toronto, Calgary, and Newark, New Jersey. And Newark, New Jersey, it's Prudential Center. That's a gigantic basketball arena. And they're only set up for like 5,500 seats. Wow. That's kind of – it's bad. It's not good. There's no way to Mm. sugarcoat any of this. So I don't know if it's punk fatigue outside of Chicago or if it's people just still not be quite sure what collision is going to be. Maybe they think it's just going to be Rampage 2 where it's inessential. It's hard to say. How can they not, though? Because, like, and I heard you talk about on your show that when, whenever Tony says, hey, we got this new big thing coming out, he really hasn't delivered. Battle of the Belts was supposed to be like Clash of the Champions. That <clears> didn't really happen. Rampage <throat> was supposed to said, oh, it's going to be like another A show. Well, that didn't really happen. I think that the consumer in this case – is justified to be a little weary until we kind of see what collision really is. And again, from the looks of these shows, they're going to go a game right off the bat, but I think they got to prove it right away. And you might have to, you might have to really nurture this brand a little bit before you can really start seeing some results. This will now be the sixth attempt of AW starting that many. Well, yeah, let's go through it. So other than dynamite rampage, we were told was going to be an a show and it Mm -hmm. was for a little while. It absolutely was. And they, Tony lost interest. Yep. Um, like you mentioned, Battle of the Belts. That's number two. It's supposed to be like Clash of Champions. They only got an hour. And it ended up being all of the C&D belts. You know, the FTW title, ROH six-man belts, third-tier belts being defended. And now it's basically an extension of Rampage in the middle of the night. Um, Dark Elevation started off as a storyline-driven show. Kenny Omega was on it every week. He worked that program with Matt Seidel, if you remember when it started. Mm-hmm. And it and it, they had all these great personality profiles. And they lost interest in that, and it turned into Dark 2. Dark itself, before now this one you can't really kill them for because pre-pandemic, Dark was mid-carters in 50-50 matches. It wasn't mm-hmm. it filmed in the arenas. The pandemic is the reason Dark changed. And so that one, I give them a pass. And 
you know, once the pandemic happened, it became sort of a tryout show and they found a lot of good talent uh, with that model. And it, you know, it, and it remained a squash show after the pandemic ended, but we can give him a break on that one. The fifth one I'm going to throw in there is ring of honor because he tried to get a television deal. Warner brothers discovery wasn't interested. He wisely didn't shop it around, even though he legally could have mm-hmm. because he didn't want to step on WBD's toes, which would be not smart with a new, television deal coming up and everything else. So instead he has parked it on his streaming service. And I would say that that's not the show. A lot of people were expecting or what was intended. It's kind of in a holding pattern. That's five shows now that's either started as something else entirely and have been, you know, they've lost interest in. So this is show number six and you're right. I think the consumer has reason to to have doubts that collision is truly going to be on the level of dynamite or even close because they've had five other cracks at this and those five other shows to, you know, a non super hardcore AEW freakazoid mm-hmm. are totally inessential. Do, do you think that the, the rumors that there's going to be some type of brand split where you're not going to get the full AEW experience on these collision shows, do you think that's hurting it too? It could. I mean, I think anything's on the table. I think, some, you know, Booking some of these smaller towns in Canada, like Hamilton and places like that, can't help. I think what JD just brought up about people not being sure whether it's going to be a true A show has an effect. I think there's some punk fatigue. And I think what you just said, maybe people think they're not going to get the full AEW experience. You know, it is all elite wrestling. Yeah. If you don't think you're going to get the Bucks and Kenny Omega, that, that could be a big factor. Absolutely. It's a bit of an uphill climb to get this. So, I mean, like, they've got it. And, again, we've seen kind of the, the previews. You know, we kind of talk. I imagine we talked to some similar people. So, I mean, we've seen kind of the previews of what this first episode can be. And it it kind of has to be a home run. Like, there cannot be a slow burn with this show. It's got to be guns blazing. Something big has got to happen right away. Or else it's just going to slide by. And this one's really going to hurt, right? Because the college football's coming. And it could get really ugly come come fall. Yeah, I, I know they're planning to come out guns blazing and they're going to have big lineups the first couple of weeks. I mean, if they if if they stick with the plan for CM Punk and Jay White, that's a really big match for week two. But they kind of shot themselves in the foot with the poor rollout of Jay White. I was going to ask that. Is this do you think this is the best chance for AEW to kind of like soft reboot Jay White, if you will? Because, yeah, they just. He just kind of showed up on day one and was just like, hey, we got the biggest free agent in wrestling, and he's a dude. You know, it just – it was so weird. I mean, and the last interview segment that they did with with him and Juice was pretty good. I thought you get to see some of Jay's personality, and if they can do something with Punk, I think he could really stand out, but it's just been so blah. No, I completely agree. I've ranted about the rollout of Jay White on my Dynamite reviews and on the flagship podcast – for the last however long he's been there, six weeks or whatever it is. It's it's been a major dropped ball because it it felt like they really picked up a win against yeah. WWE with that when they got him when everyone thought he was going to WWE. And whether that was the reality or not is immaterial. I mean whether it could be entirely possible that WWE never intended to sign him or have this rumored hiring freeze. But the perception is the reality, and the perception is that they won one over and got the guy. And then they didn't treat him like a big deal. You know, the rollout was poor. The feud with Ricky Starks was poor and didn't do Ricky Starks any any favors either. 
And now he just feels like a guy in the mid card, as opposed to one of the biggest stars in the world, who's a multiple time world champion, who has headlines. This man has headlines, the Tokyo Dome and Madison Square Garden. And he should have been presented as someone who is one of the biggest stars in the world, who has headlines, the biggest shows in the world, and is a big fucking deal. And they didn't roll him out like that. And I don't know if you could put that toothpaste back in the tube. You know, working with Punk will help. But I thought it was a major dropped ball. They didn't have a better plan than a mid-card feud with Ricky Starks where nobody gets any microphone time. Two guys who are great talkers. They didn't let him talk. (laughs) What are we doing? Unreal. You know, it's not like these are two work-rate guys who can't talk and you just want to focus on the in-ring. These are two of the best talkers in the company. You got Ricky Mm -hmm. Starks who not that long ago ate up MJF in a promo segment. Okay, and Jay White, who is one of the best talkers in the world, you never gave them an eight-minute segment to stand there and cut promos on each other in the ring. I mean, it's insanity, and that's part of the reason that dud of a feud where Jay White doesn't feel special at all anymore. So I don't know if you can reboot that. I don't know if you can put that toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak, but Punk Punk is a big fan, and he thinks he can revive the guy, so we'll see. And go, go ahead, JD. No, I was say this. We talk AEW creative issues have been a big talking point this year. We heard from a friend of ours that AEW is actually flirting with the idea of an actual writing team. I don't know. Is that something you've heard from kind of your sources? Is this just something that's kind of getting out of hand, or is this is this something that could be on the horizon for AEW? You got a good source. I heard the same thing today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't have. I thought any, we did. I don't have any details on it, but. And, and and it it you know hearing the term writing team, Ugh. yeah, that's my reaction. I, I, <laughs> I I've been a big proponent of what I like about a all the things I like best about AEW are all the things that they do that the other guys don't do. Yes, that's the appeal to me, and I think to a lot of people. And when I hear writing team, I like you, I shudder. You know, it it, it and it's not that I don't think. Tony needs help, but he's already getting help. He's surrounded, and 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 it's no secret. I mean, he talks about it on his pressers and all the people that you know, the Pat Bucks and the Sanjay Dutts, and 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 um, you know, they bring in Will Washington, and you, you go right down the line, all the people who are helping him out with these things. But he always makes it a point to say he has the final word, and he's you know, because I think that's twofold. One, we know he has a little bit of an ego. Okay, two, he wants all the. The, the heat on his shoulders when things are bad. He doesn't want to blame his people. So he's always going to say that he's the fine. And, and I believe that, and I don't think he's being disingenuous. I do think everything goes through Tony the same way. Everything goes through Vince McMahon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the, I, so it's not as if he's not already farming ideas from people, but the idea of a writing team, are we going to start writing promos now? Like, what does that- this mean? That was my that was my first thought. I was like, "Are you guys gonna go fucking hire Jimmy Jacobs and R.D. Evans from Impact or some oh shit?" Oh God, I can't do it. Uh. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> this Joe, this was an Impact podcast. This is how we got it started. And um, about six we about six maybe two months ago, I just yeah. broke on the air one day. I'm like, I can't review this show anymore. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't do it. Like it's yeah. not even it's not even fun bad anymore. It's just it's killing me. So I mean, just the thought of them moving in that direction, although. Perhaps, depending on the people they would bring in, I'm willing to revisit that subject if we're not bringing in like 
I think there's too many WWE former WWE voices in the room as it is. I I, I think that's the problem. It's yeah. like, like the, you know, they brought over Kevin Dunn's producer guy, and now they got this uh, Adam Hopkins guy who the media will tell you is like this fucking genius. I, I, I get the feeling he's very nice to them, and so they're putting out very nice stories about him. And um, and, and now they're, they're bringing in those, these other guys. I don't want them to bring off – you bring over WWE writers from the WWE scrap heap whenever they, they churn out their writers. These burnt-out guys that got abused by Vince McMahon, and they, they're finally going to – I know, like, yeah, I, like, we're going to bring over Greenfield that was on MLW for a while. You know, all these guys. Like, I, I don't know. I just don't. I'm just not interested. Just let them right. fucking talk, man. Just let them cut promos. Yeah, you know, the last pay per view cycle, a big theme of mine on my shows was that the show felt very unlike Dynamite and unlike AEW, and I felt like there was a lot of WWE type things creeping into the show that we hadn't seen previously for for a run of about five or six weeks there before the tv got a little better right before the pay-per-view but you look at some of the people in the room other than the ones that you've named i mean i know for a fact pat buck is a is a great guy and i know a lot of i don't know pat buck but i know a lot of people who know pat buck because i'm from new jersey and Mm -hmm. he ran wrestle pro there for years and i know you know some people who have uh, you know, wrestled for him and, and things like that. And and I know he's, but he has a very WWE brain when it comes to his creative mm-hmm. and Sanjay Dutt, the same thing. He's very sports entertainment centric with a lot of his ideas and he's a great mm-hmm. guy. And I thought he was a great hire, you know? Um, but so it, it, I felt like a lot of WWE tendencies were creeping in during that last pay-per-view cycle. And it, it really got me to thinking that maybe, there was a change, of course, when it comes to just the general um, idea of what Tony, of what direction Tony wanted this show to go in, maybe in an attempt to appeal to a different subset of fans. I don't know. It, it concerned me. But it turned around as we got closer to the pay-per-view. But, yeah, when you hear the term writing team, it brings all those fears back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, – it's, it's, it, it, it's a little scary. It's the same reaction Mike had where he kind of grunted when he, when he said it, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't like the thought of it. I don't like hearing. Cause uh, I think that's been, you know, it's the reason I haven't personally connected with WWE in 20 years. Ditto. Same. I mean, we talk about that a lot on this show. I mean, where do you think Brian, it seems like Brian Danielson has really grown in influence. And when we think of Brian Danielson, we think of a, a traditional pro wrestler, but I'm wondering where are because he was there a long time. Where do you think his sensibilities really rest? Is he more of a sports entertainment guy than we realize? Maybe. Um, he's undoubtedly picked up a lot of influence, uh, you know, in the room, so to speak. There's no doubt about that. And I know he has a major hand in a lot of the uh, collision stuff. And, and I, I don't think it's an accident that Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe are on the collision side because I think Tony understands, and this is just my speculation. This is not something I've been told. Mm-hmm. This is Joe Lanza speculation, but uh, I have those perfectly honed instincts. So you can, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, I think Tony feels like he knows that people like Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe are people CM Punk respects. Yeah. And it's smart to surround him with those kind of guys because he's less apt to lose his shit. If those kind of guys disagree with him on something and he's more apt to go along with, with 
with those guys because of the respect he has for them going back all these years and all that. He sees them as old school like him. And I think there's an element of that. But Danielson has picked up a lot of influence. And you're right. He, you know, he was on the WWE creative team for a little while. Mm -hmm. And he worked there for a long time. And we know he has a lot of old school, traditional, smarky sensibilities, but I'm sure there's a little, and, and he's close to Vince. Mm-hmm. So I, and, and he sees Vince as a mentor in a lot of ways. So I'm sure there's a little bit of that when it comes to Danielson. I don't think you're off base with that. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I, I think that uh, it's a fascinating conversation. You know, Hey, before I ask you this next question, we're coming up on time here. You know, some of the audience might, um, might accuse me of maybe trying to get you riled up, but uh, I'm going to ask the question anyway. I think I'm J- I told JD, I intentionally put this in here so you could shit on it. I was, it. One, I was um, <laughs> wondering why that was in the notes this week. Continue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Joe is the bloodline. Cinema? Oh God, the fucking bloodline. Okay. <laughs> All right, great. You know, you're 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 lucky. This is like my seventh hour of audio, and I'm losing yeah. my voice. Because man, I don't know if you're going to get a traditional Joe Lanza uh, rant here, yeah. but I'm going to try my best. But uh, what is your question regarding the bloodline? Is it oh, cinema, sir? That's is what it Twitter cinema? Yeah, yeah. Every yeah, week, the, this is you, cinema. You you see these idiots out there, and apparently they've never seen a fucking movie. Ryan movie. Satin, asshole. Compared, uh, he, I think he, I'm pretty sure 100% convinced that he thought The Godfather was a Scorsese movie, by the way. I don't think he was trying to be ironic or funny. I think he's a fucking idiot, and he absolutely that. thought that. But so you got you got all these people all over all over Twitter and and uh, and even in some Discord places where they're saying they're comparing the bloodline, the acting that you see in the bloodline as cinema, like they're at the fucking movie theater watching a movie. I cannot stand <laughs> the bloodline i um look i i understand it's a hot storyline for them and that there's an entire new generation of wrestling fans who really connect with this kind of storytelling you can't deny it i mean oh, yeah. you saw the quarter hour it popped last week on on smackdown at the end of the show people have really bought into this thing um but leaving that aside for me personally um for for however long it's been going on, I guess since Roman returned at the end of the Eternity. pandemic, at the end of 2020 or whatever, when he came back from his uh, leukemia till today, however long that is, let's call it three years. Forever. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, exactly. You know, the first two years of it was just boring, repetitive Roman in what looked like a hotel lobby with the Usos and Paul Heyman making his dumb faces with his stupid jowls bouncing all over the place. And it was the same shit on SmackDown every week. You know, it's uh, uh, Roman uh, bullying the Usos. Uh, Jay's, uh, one of them, I, I don't even know which is which, but one of them is uh, nobody's bitch. The other one is uh, the right-hand man. And they were just repeating this storyline for two years. The most boring shit imaginable. It finally gets interesting when Sami Zayn accidentally gets over. That was supposed to be like a two-week storyline where Sammy's just a joke and, but he got over. So mm-hmm. they had to stick with it because he's so talented that he accidentally gets over. He, he forms a, a nice report with Heyman. They write a bunch of shit together. That works. Then Cody back comes back at Royal rumble. And we're like, wow, we got these two hot baby faces. They can pick one of these guys and go. They don't pick either one of them. Okay. And that's an entirely different discussion. 
But for three or four months there, the bloodline was finally interesting because they had a different foil. They beat both of those guys, and we're right back. We're right back to Roman. (laughs) Thinking one of the Usos is disloyal, and we're doing the same story we were doing for two years. And people eat this shit up. I I don't understand what they find interesting about it. It bores me to tears. And I can't stand the bad community theater acting that they all do, which people fall over themselves to put over. And it's like, uh, it's not good. It's hokey. I hate when they do it in the middle of the matches. I mean, I just want to watch guys wrestle. Tell the story with your physicality like we did for 120 years. Why now do we have to stop in the middle of a match and explain loudly what the story is? Is it because you think your fan base is stupid? That's the only thing I could surmise. Do you think that they won't be able to get a physical story? So you have to stop and explain the story in the middle of the match? It drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. It's undoubtedly successful. But it's so outside of three or four isolated months with Cody and Sammy, it's been a gigantic bore for three years. Maybe I'm just too far removed from their style of storytelling, or maybe I've just been so disconnected to WWE for two decades now that it just was never going to work for me. But, man, I, I, I just find it so uninteresting, and it baffles me why... What is so interesting about Roman not trusting Jay Uso for the 5,000th time? Where's the appeal to any of this? I'm with you. I don't get any of it. I'm a, I'm a teacher, right? And uh, in my classes, I get kids talking about this stuff. And it's cool that they're talking about wrestling, and I love it. But, I mean, like when they're doing the We The Ones thing and talking about Roman, and I like try to talk to them about other kinds of wrestling, and they look at me like I'm a dork because I am. But just like <laughs> – I'm just I I don't get it. It's the first time I've ever talked about wrestling with someone and felt old. I don't get it. Like I, it's literally like listening to music and you're like this is awful, but kids like it. I just yeah. it's it's mind-boggling to me. I don't get yeah. it. I'm with you. I'm with you. You yeah. know the worst I, part, you know what is arguably the worst part is you know, Roman, the way I read the story and maybe this is the problem and I'm way off. The way I read the story is Roman is a guy who is deeply insecure. Absolutely. And, yep. and, and his character now, not him. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Like he's a deeply insecure guy who will step on anyone, including his own family and manipulate anyone around him in order to keep his title and keep his power. And he doesn't really love his family. He doesn't give a shit about the Usos. All he cares about is retaining his power and he's insecure about it. And he uses these people and he manipulates them. And that could be the basis of a really cool wrestling heel. Here's the problem. He comes out for his title defenses. And Michael Cole, the lead announcer, who should be the voice of the fans and a pure babyface, puts this guy over like he's in the midst of the greatest title reign of all time. And then he successfully defends his title and Cole puts him over again. He tells you how many days it's been. He says how dominant he is when the story should be. This guy continues to manipulate his family. He cheated again to keep his title. And when are we no longer going to be under the thumb of this heinous Roman Reigns who has this company hostage? That should be the tact that the announcers are taking. And he should be presented as this evil manipulative heel because that's what his actions are. But they present him like he's some conquering hero having an all-time title ring comparing him to bruno sammartino and i don't and, understand the psychology behind that i'm with you and that's not the character he's playing again I'm, I'm a writer so like i look way into this stuff i get a little into the lore like he 
he is a failed baby face, right? This whole character stems from the fact that people hated him. They mm-hmm. hated him as the champion. They hated him as the number one good guy. So now he's got this severe insecurity, right? Because he, any of the, this could all go away at any minute. So he's built this fake wall around him. And, it, and he knows it could all come toppling down, which is why he's got to manipulate these people like chess pieces. Again, this is when you explain it like that, it sounds like, wow, this could be, this is actually really good TV. But there's this gigantic disconnect. That's not the, that, that seems to be the way Roman plays it. But that's not they. T- that's not the story they're actually telling, and that's, that's not the way the company tells the no, story. No, it's frustrating. It doesn't make sense. JD, it, it, JD, this man's catchphrase is "acknowledge me." He's, he's like, yeah. they're that's telling you. It, it, <laughs> he's so insecure that he's yes. telling you to acknowledge him. Yes, and, and, cry, and it's a cry is, for help. Yes, that's what and, it is. And this is where I always get in trouble. And, but their fan base is too stupid to understand the story because then they all put their fists up and acknowledge them. They put their finger up and acknowledge them. That's what the kids hey, in my class do. They put their finger up. That's it's, supposed it's, to be I, the heat. That's yeah, the heat. I was, I was at Wrestle. I was at WrestleMania. The biggest baby face of WrestleMania was Roman Reigns, and and the Bloodline. Like they they were worshiping that guy when he beat Cody. And I thought that everybody was going to be pissed when he beat Cody in that arena. That was a huge baby face pop for him. And the, you had my whole section that I was in holding up the ones. And I was like the dumb doofus that was like still getting into it. Cause I thought that Cody should have won. I still think that I still think it would have been better oh, if yeah. Cody won, but you know, and the only reason I went to the goddamn thing was cause I was thinking Cody was going to get that moment and he never got it. So I left disappointed, but I got to tell you the audience, loved it they were happy that that roman cheated to win again like they were a part of it yeah they don't and then they acknowledge him they stick their finger yeah. in you they don't even get the story but you know what on one hand it's hard to blame them because the company doesn't tell you the story properly no. i think the way the way it's presented by the performers is the way that me and jd laid it out yeah but then the commentary doesn't put over the fact that he's a manipulative asshole they they try to present him as the greatest champion of all time, closing in on all of these records, where Michael Cole should be, every time this guy wins, what Michael Cole should be doing is going, this is despicable. It's going to be a crime if he passes Bruno. I can't believe he's about to pass Pedro Morales, an honorable champion. This, you know, That's how it should be presented. But they, they act like it's succession, but it's really Nightmare on Elm Street 4, where the villain is out there killing all the teenagers and their fans are cheering for it. Yeah, yeah, and they're being led along by the commentary, which is baffling. Yeah, me. it's I, I, you know. So no, I I cannot stand the bloodline. You know, um, it, it's obviously been a big success for them. It doesn't connect with me at all. I, I have no interest in it. And quite honestly, if it wasn't my job to follow this stuff, I I'd hand wave it all. I mean, but it's impossible. You know, I've got to turn on. I've got to fast forward my way through SmackDown. There's no way around it. I have to do it. Mike, I got bad news for you. The question is, okay. is this cinema? Is yes, because I just compared it to Nightmare on Elm Street 4. <laughs> so it is, in yeah. fact, cinema. But you're 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 fueling the fire for Ryan Satin. Who That's right. That, I just I just agree with yeah. Ryan Satin, and now I have to quit the show. Now, now you hate I, yourself. Well, now I'm, and if now it makes I'm you feel better, I, I guarantee Ryan Satin thinks that uh, Jason Voorhees is in Nightmare on Elm Street 4. So <laughs> he probably has no fucking clue who's in what. Um, <laughs> but, hey, uh Joe, I think that's going to do it for the show, Matt. Man, we really appreciate you Thank taking you. the time off, especially after recording four hours uh, for Voices of Wrestling, man. What do you guys got on topic or what do you guys got coming up out on the show this week? All right. So this week's show, which uh, when does this show come out? Is this tomorrow uh, morning? It'd be Friday. Friday morning. 
All right, so um, sometime Friday afternoon is when we drop the uh, the free version of the flagship. There is a uh, completely unedited uh, live version uh, behind our paywall on our $10 tier. But uh, every week the free version comes out on Friday afternoon. On this week's show, the topics we cover are obviously we do about 90 minutes on the Iron Sheik. Obviously, we were going to open up with that. There's a AW discussion uh, similar to what we just did here where we break down the ticket sales for the collision shows coming up. Talk about Forbidden Door a little bit. Uh, We do a complete review of Dominion, uh, New Japan's big show from last week. We talk about Dragon Gate firing two of their uh, young wrestlers this week in SB Kento and uh, and Fujiwara. Uh, We also review the NWA Crockett Cup uh, double Uh, night pay-per-view from last week so uh the flagship is a show that attempts to cover the entire gamut and world of pro wrestling each week and somehow squeeze it into three hours i don't know where else in the world you're going to find a show that's going to cover dragon gate and the nwa in in the same three-hour block (laughs) but that's the kind of show we do it's uh very much not wwe and aew focus we obviously talk about both of those promotions because you have to and because uh we kind of just tried it like this week for example we did zero wwe talk so for a catch-all and that happens fairly frequently because quite honestly we just didn't think anything going on in the company this week warranted bumping any of the other stuff that we covered so uh when promotions like the nwa or mlw or some of the promotions in japan have major shows they're going to get airtime on our show it might be hour three like the nwa was this week but they're going to get airtime but uh but yeah we do a catch for people who aren't familiar with us we do a catch-all show that covers the entire world of wrestling sort of the news of the week and um it's myself and rich Krejci. uh he's the one everybody likes i'm the one everybody hates and <laughs> we've been it. doing it for about uh 12 years now and you can find it on uh, wherever you listen your favorite pod catcher of choice ron all of them uh don't use apple though we hate apple we have a running feud with uh with apple so uh fuck apple try to listen to us uh <laughs> you listen spotify whatever just don't I, listen to us on apple but, i download it uh, on spotify yeah. Thank you. Anyone who doesn't use Apple is uh, is a friend of ours. We've had a running feud with Apple, lots of problems with Apple. But anywhere you listen to your podcasts, uh, you can find us. And uh, listen, if you like us a lot, uh, we also have a Patreon with three different price tiers, $1, $5, $10. $10 your best value. You're going to get all of our live shows and everything we do. But uh, uh, check that out as well. That's where you'll find my weekly Dynamite reviews where I scream and yell and then get angry DMs from Tony Khan. And uh, and uh, yeah, and all of our bonus content as well. We do a lot of historical content behind the paywall. We have a lot of running series. My November to Remember series, which is a running history of ECW from 1992 through WWECW, which oh, is nice. a daunting project that I've been doing for the last couple of years. We're somewhere mid 1993 right now. I really take my time and and let it cook. And uh, and 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 treat it like a passion project. Uh, so uh, uh, and uh, Rich Krejci always has something wacky going on behind the paywall as well. But uh, if you've never listened to us before, give us our, give our show a shot this week. Uh, we share very similar sensibilities to the two hosts of this show uh, that you're listening to right now. So uh, if you're looking for another echo chamber, we'll be right up your alley. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but yeah, that's about yeah. all I got to plug. Speaking yeah, I, of, and uh, I can I. I can I'll attest say, that if you're a fan of this show, you'll be a fan of Voices of Wrestling. Absolutely. Go ahead, accurate. I would say, speaking of uh, Patreons and historical content, you and I have to get book some time out to uh, do our Black Scorpion show coming yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I think get so. John I was just about, that. 
Yeah, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and plug our Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash Media. I think next week we'll do the Black Scorpion. With uh, We'll try to get Muse on for that. We'll try Perfect. for that. I'll get the, the deal together. And then uh, this weekend, talking about obscure wrestling covered in Hour 3, I will be reviewing Against All Odds uh, for the Why? Patreon. Because Brace for Impact is not dead, motherfuckers. I'm keeping it alive. Um, and I don't, I don't even think uh, – I don't even think uh, – anybody wants it anymore i'm just going to keep doing it because i like it all right so against all odds this tomorrow night i'll probably record uh, something like that for saturday morning or something with the coffee with uncle mike talking uh, against all odds should be a good show actually alex shelley versus steve macklin in the main event uh, that should be a really good match so uh yeah go to patreon.com also check out voices of wrestling um not just the flagship they got tons of shows here they got days of thunder Eurograps express the gentleman wrestling podcast that's with jesse collings right that's that's jesse's isn't that joe Correct. Yeah, he does a yeah. show where he tackles, he deep dives a uh, a, a, a he, he he sees himself as an intellectual. He's kind of uppity that Collings, but uh, <laughs> they, they usually tackle. A, I was actually on his show this week, and we talked about um, whether critique is dying in pro wrestling. So uh, oh, that's nice. kind of the that's <laughs> if you want more of me, you can find me there this week. But that's the kind of show he yeah. does. And I want to, uh, they, there's tons of shows. I can't get to them all. There's a huge list here that I pulled up on the voice of risk in discord, which JD and I recently joined. We've had a lot of fun over there. So you can chop it up with the uh, Joe and rich there, but, uh, shake them ropes. Uh, Jeff Hawkins. Jeff also, Hawkins. he is a friend of this show. He has a show on our network. He has the dynamite show with Paul Fontaine. Well, he's also on shake them ropes on the voice of the wrestling network. So there is some uh, synergy there between fight game media and the voices of wrestling, but Hey guys, that's going to do it for us this week. And until next week, mahalo. Music, it's not just part of our daily lives, it's part of our wrestling fandom as well, and it has been for decades. That's where this show comes in, Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling, hosted by Andrew Rich. Hey, that's me. Each episode delivers a different topic with a variety of great guests, fun conversations, musical analysis, and of course, a heartfelt pun or two. New episodes drop every other Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. Check out Music of the Mat only on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network.